We at the Cato Institute try to live our principles, and that means taking no government money. So it's through support from people like you that we're able to work toward our shared vision of individual liberty, limited government, free markets, and peace. Please consider supporting the Cato Daily Podcast and the broad mission of the Cato Institute by visiting cato.org slash podcast sponsor and learn more about the benefits of sponsorship. Give a thousand dollars and I'll gladly give you a shout out on the podcast. Thank you. This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Wednesday, December 29th, 2021. I'm Caleb Brown. At the Cato Institute's Cato Club event earlier this year, Chris Edwards made a broad defense of angel investors, those who provide funds and guidance to startup enterprises. He discussed the Biden administration's threat to angel investing. President Biden and the Democrats have launched an all-out attack on businesses and wealth. Uh, They're pushing to raise taxes $2 trillion over 10 years. Uh, as Sally mentioned. Today, I'm going to defend wealth. Uh, In particular, I'm going to defend one very important thing uh, that wealthy people do with their money, uh, which is angel investment. Angel investment is simply uh, funding startup businesses. Uh, If you've ever seen the TV show Shark Tank, uh, that's angel investment. So angel investment uh, is uh, crucial to the economy, but it is threatened by proposed capital gains taxes. Uh, So today I'm going to talk about the importance of angel investment to the economy and then the the proposed tax threats. Uh, And by the way, we we have numerous angels, I think, in the audience here at Cato. Uh, In talking to a couple of uh, our angel investors uh, here yesterday, I actually noticed that they, they had a somewhat different take on you know what they do and you know the potential role of uh, you know tax increases on the, on the industry. So what I'm going to give you today is my non-practitioner point of view on these issues. Uh, and in the uh, in the you know, question and answer, if, if Ken or Dale or any other angel investor, you know, you want to uh, ask a question and agree with me or disagree with me, that's fine, and and we can we can get into it. So the uh, House Tax Writing Committee passed a $2 trillion tax increase a couple of weeks ago. It would raise taxes on corporations and individuals and small businesses. Uh, I've been uh, busy criticizing all these tax increases in op-ed and in the media. Uh, I testified to the Ways and Means Committee uh, recently about the huge burden of taxes that wealthy people already pay. Uh, but today's focus is on capital gains taxes. The Democrats, uh, the House bill at least proposes to raise the capital gains tax rate. Uh, It would limit Section 1202, which is a capital gains tax break for startup investment. Uh, President Biden has proposed taxing gains at death. Uh, And Ron Wyden, the the Senate uh, chair of the Tax Writing Committee, uh, wants to limit deferral, meaning he's proposed uh, essentially taxing uh, all accretions or increases in uh, all types of wealth uh, every year uh, would be banged with uh, an income tax. So this is a pretty radical stuff, and Democrats are coming at capital gains from, uh, from every angle. So these are capital gains tax rates in the OECD high-income uh, countries. Uh, the red bar in the middle is where the United States is now. If you include state taxes, we've got a top capital gains tax rate of around 29%. Uh, the average in the OECD countries is just 19%, so we're already uh, well above average. Uh, the red bar on the left, that's what uh, President Biden proposed to double the capital gains tax rate up to over 40%. You know, that would be the highest in the OECD and I think, I think the world. 
the, the House Democratic proposal is sort of more reasonable. We'd only get to the third highest uh, spot uh, in, the, uh, in the OECD. So the, these Democratic proposals, they are radical. Uh, just about every high-income country keeps a much lower tax rate on capital gains than the top rate on ordinary income. Uh, partly because of the importance uh, for, for low capital gains taxes uh, to spur startup investment. So uh, Cato published my study uh, this last week uh, entitled uh, How Wealth Fuels Growth, the Role of Angel Investment, if you'd like further reading uh, on this topic. So who are angel investors? Uh, well, they're wealthy people who fund startup businesses. Uh, this is hands-on investment. It is patient investment. Uh, startup investments often take five or 10 years uh, to potentially pay off. And it's very high risk investment. There's sort of a standard a metric in angel in investment as well as venture capital that, you know, only about one out of 10 investments is going to be a big hit. And about half of all of the investments are actually going to uh, lose money. Uh, there is one estimate. There's about, uh, uh, oh, and, and, you know, and by the way, on the, on the big hits, you know, the, the big hits will generate a big capital gain. And that's why capital gains taxes are so important here. One estimate is that there's about 335 wealthy uh, angel investors uh, in the United States. While the TV show Shark Tank focuses, if you've ever watched on low-tech consumer items, you know, most angel investment is in tech-oriented industries, uh, healthcare, financial services, uh, energy, uh, and, other, and other sort of leading-edge industries. So what do Henry Ford, Alexander Graham Bell, Steve Jobs, and Jeff Bezos have in common? Well, they're all great American entrepreneurs. They all launched uh, great American companies. Uh, but all of them initially at startup relied on money from wealth, uh, a wealthy person uh, to, to help launch their startup. Uh, you know, these, these uh, entrepreneurs couldn't just go to a bank uh, and, you know, borrow money. They have very risky uh, ideas, often seemingly crazy sounding ideas. They need equity investment and they need, and, and they need equity investment from a wealthy person who's willing to take a big risk. And that's what angel investment uh, is all about. Uh, in my paper, I discuss some uh, famous angels uh, in American history. Uh, Mark Twain, the writer, uh, used his profits uh, to invest in a whole range of startups in the, in the 19th century, leading edge uh, industries uh, of the day. Uh, Twain actually lost his shirt on, on most of these uh, investments, and he uh, was, became sort of very uh, bitter about it. But I give him a lot of credit for, for trying, and actually his experience shows you how risky uh, investing in leading edge in industries is. Um, Ashton uh, Kutcher, the Hollywood actor, is a well-known uh, angel investor in California. He actually heads up a, a venture capital company as well. Uh, perhaps the most impressive angel investor in recent decades is Ron Conway. Uh, he's a Silicon Valley billionaire. Uh, he says he's invested in 650 startup businesses over the last three decades, which is, which is really uh, impressive. Actually, I want to go back to the previous bullet. Um, there's... Many uh, big American companies today were originally angel funded. One of the most fascinating is Micron Technology. It's uh, one of the biggest semiconductor companies uh, in the world today. Uh, it's headquartered in Boise, Idaho, uh, of all places. And the story there is kind of fascinating. These young uh, engineers in the uh, late 1970s, uh, they were working in Texas for a semiconductor company. They went home to Idaho, they wanted to launch a semiconductor company, and they looked around and they found some local business people who were willing to, to uh, give them $300,000 to launch this startup. Uh, then they went to uh, uh, Idaho potato billionaire, J.R. Simplot, and they got about $15 million. Uh, that allowed them to build their semiconductor uh, plant. 
sort of the rest is history. Micron today uh, employs 30,000 people, uh, about 6,000 in Idaho, uh, all because they were able to find uh, a local angel investors uh, in Idaho to, to fund this kind of seemingly crazy uh, idea. Uh, serial entrepreneurs are, of course, people who start many businesses. And, you know, what you see often uh, in history is that, you know, entrepreneurs, they'll get rich uh, on their initial startup, then they'll use the cash to invest in uh, uh, many uh, additional startups uh, and launch uh, numerous companies. Uh, Thomas Edison got wealthy inventing better stock ticker and telegraph machines. He, of course, used his wealth to open research uh, labs and start uh, many uh, businesses. So angel investors and venture capitalists, uh, what's the difference? Well, angels are individuals. Uh, they invest about $25 billion a year and about 65000 uh, mainly tech-oriented startups. Uh, venture capitalists are, are partnership structures. Uh, last year, they invested about $166 billion into uh, startups and growth companies, uh, about 11000 a lot fewer companies, but the investments uh, are bigger than, than the angel investments. You know, the classic Silicon Valley startup, is self-funded, uh, you know, if they progress, they get some angel funding. If they're successful, they'll get multiple rounds of venture funding. And ultimately, if they're successful five or 10 years later, uh, they'll do an IPO or they'll get uh, acquired. And that IPO or acquisition ultimately, you know, will generate a capital gain, uh, which, uh, you know, often uh, is taxable. So two thirds of all IPOs in the United States now are venture-backed companies, and about half of those are angel-financed. So angel and venture capital funded companies are becoming increasingly uh, important to the U.S. economy. So what is the virtuous cycle of wealth? Uh, this sort of may, may be an obvious point to uh, this audience, but you know, wealth from successful startups in places like Silicon Valley you know, is often recycled into new startups by the angels and the venture capitalists and the entrepreneurs who are successful. You know, they reinvest their money in leading edge startups of the day. Uh, angels and venture capitalists like to uh, invest close to home, which strengthens these technology hubs. So, you know, the reason why we have technology hubs like Silicon Valley and Austin, Texas and others is not just because engineers and entrepreneurs like to live near each other. Uh, it's because this cycle of wealth just sort of builds and compounds uh, over time. Uh, in my study, I go into some earlier Silicon Valleys, and you see these same patterns, you know, well back in history. Uh, 120 years ago in Detroit, it was very much a Silicon Valley. There was hundreds of startup automobile companies. Uh, Henry Ford, you know, didn't just go down uh, to a local bank and borrow, uh, and borrow money for uh, the, what became the Ford Motor Company. He had actually failed at his two, first two startups. Uh, he went to a local a rich person who took a big risk on uh, investing in Henry Ford. Cleveland, a few decades earlier, was also very much a hotbed uh, of leading edge industries of, like electricity. And even further back uh, uh, in, in history in the 18th century, I go into a little bit of my uh, study, you see these same patterns. Uh, you know, the Industrial Revolution uh, is generally thought to start in the, you know, the Midlands in England around Birmingham in the early 18th century. And, you know, economic histories will, will often discuss the famous entrepreneurs who made advances in steam engines and iron technology and that sort of stuff. But if you look behind those entrepreneurs, you will usually find a wealthy person uh, who had some money and was willing to take uh, a big risk on unknown new technologies or entrepreneurs. So how did private capital tackle COVID-19? The development of the Moderna and BioNTech uh, vaccines that were based on this new uh, mRNA technologies uh, has been a huge success. 
Uh, BioNTech uh, partnered with Pfizer, uh, and these are the two uh, uh, you know, dominant main uh, vaccines that have been distributed in, in the United States. Both BioNTech and Moderna have fascinating stories. Uh, BioNTech was founded in 2008. Um, it was at startup, it, it received $180 million of angel investment uh, from this uh, wealthy German family, which is an extraordinary amount of money. And all in all, it raised $1.3 billion uh, uh, in the years uh, for over you know, a decade before it went uh, public from venture capital and angel investment. Moderna had a similar story, founded in 2010. It received uh, $2 billion in private capital before it went uh, public. Uh, and as I discussed in a, a National Re Review op-ed last week, uh, these companies actually got relatively little uh, government uh, subsidies along the way. Basically, they, they, they put in 10 years of research into mRNA technologies uh, that set them up so when the, the pandemic uh, started in 2020, they were ready uh, and could very quickly develop vaccines. So, you know, we can thank private capital for the uh, kind of miraculous development of these vaccines uh, last year by these two companies. So how do angels drive the uh, economy? Uh, in my study, I, I discussed two uh, basic ways, uh, innovation. Uh, new industries are usually pioneered by new companies. Uh, and there's a lot of economic research uh, on this. Those new companies are often funded, as I said, by angel and venture uh, capital investors. Uh, if you go back to the 1970s, the dominant computer firms were IBM uh, and Digital Equipment and Wang, uh, Wang Computer. Um, the, the personal computer industry was pioneered not by those dominant companies, but by startups like Apple Computer. You see a similar thing in many industries. You know, the leading electric vehicle maker today uh, in America is Tesla. You know, it, it dominates the electric vehicle market, uh, not the big, uh, the big three uh, automobile companies. Uh, and competition. Uh, Angel-funded uh, startups drive competition uh, in the economy. They challenge not only big companies, but regulations as well. Uh, in my study, I go into some detail uh, about FedEx and MCI corporations in, in the 1970s. Uh, they're both amazing stories. Uh, both of these companies were funded by angel and venture capital investors. Uh, they challenged not only the dominant companies in their industries, but also the government regulations that protected uh, the dominant companies. You see a, same, a similar thing today, uh, you know, companies like uh, Uber, you know, they have to not only uh, challenge taxicab companies, they have to challenge all the regulations that protect uh, the, the taxicab companies. So angel and venture capital funded startups, you know, can help break open uh, competition uh, in the economy. A footnote kind of on that is that in July, I testified to the Congressional Joint Economic Committee uh, on corporate power. The Democrats were having uh, a hearing basically, basically to complain about, you know, big corporate power and monopoly and that sort of stuff. I talked to them first about testifying about antitrust policy. Don't know much about antitrust policy generally against it. Uh, but what I decided to do is I said, look, that you know, the way to limit corporate power in the economy is to deregulate as widely as we can and to maximize the flow of private capital uh, to start up businesses that will aggressively go after dominant firms. That's you know, the market solution uh, to big corporate power. So how do uh, capital gains taxes affect startups? Well, there's, there's potentially three ways. If capital gains taxes are raised a lot, You'll reduce supply, reduce the supply of capital to angels, uh, from angels and other investors to start up businesses. 
Um, you know, investors always have the, uh, the alternative of investing in safe dividend-paying corporations or bonds or tax-free uh, munis or other sorts of investments. The higher you raise capital gains taxes, the less uh, lucrative uh, it is to invest in uh, startups with the potential for big capital gains. Uh, secondly, if you, you raise capital gains taxes, you reduce the demand uh, for capital by entrepreneurs. You know, entrepreneurs always have the, the option of just being a salaried employee at a big corporation. Uh, and, you know, Silicon Valley is, is, is really the story of salaried employees at big companies like Google splitting off and launching their own startups. Um, you know, if you raise capital gains taxes, that the, the uh, leaving salaried employment and going to a very risky startup uh, becomes uh, a, a, less, uh, a less attractive proposition. And similarly, uh, as you may know, I mean, a lot of uh, startups, they're cash poor, but, you know, they need skilled employees to compete against the big companies. One way they get those skilled employees is by offering equity-based compensation, you know, stock options, for example. And so if you raise capital gains taxes, uh, you're making uh, the prospect of uh, leaving salaried employment going to a startup a lot less, uh, a lot less attractive. So I, I mentioned at the outset that, you know, Democrats are attacking capital gains from all kinds of different angles. And, um, you know, the question is, you know, why is that? The answer you know, is that many members of Congress get their bad tax ideas uh, from uh, left of center economists at think tanks uh, and academia. And these economists push uh, two very bad uh, or they believe in two very bad theories. I mean, the first is Keynesian uh, theory, which is the view that consumption drives the economy uh, and in parallel savings, wealth uh, and entrepreneurship is less important. You know, they believe that consumption is the way to, to get growth. The other uh, thing they believe in is Haig-Simons theory. So this is the view that taxable income should be defined extremely broadly to include all, as they say, accretions of wealth every year. You know, your house value goes up, your 401k value goes up, uh, your wealth goes up, you know, the, the value of your startup investment goes up, bang, it should be hit with income tax uh, uh, right away. So that's what uh, they believe. And, you know, the background here is that a century ago, the 16th Amendment gave Congress the, the wide open ability to tax income. Uh, it didn't define what income was, though, and liberal and conservative economists have been debating the whole time, you know, what a good definition of income is for the income tax. Uh, liberal academics uh, have believed in this thing called uh, Haig-Simons theory. As I said, that's, you know, it's also called mark-to-market taxation of capital gains or accrual taxation of capital gains. Any wealth increase every year should be banged with an income tax. Uh, conservatives and libertarian economists uh, have instead said, no, you know, income uh, ought to be defined more uh, narrowly. Wealth should only be taxed when it's realized or when it's uh, consumed. That may seem like an obscure debate, but, you know, I promise you this, this Haig-Simons theory is behind much of what the democratic tax policy agenda has been for a long time. There's disagreements. Uh, between the parties on not just capital gains, but the taxation of retirement accounts, uh, the taxation of capital investment. They, these debates all revolve around this, you know, proper definition uh, of income. So is there any good news here? Um, you know, I'm hoping that technology industry uh, leaders, you know, wake up to the tax threat that is in uh, Washington. 
The thing that I think maybe some industry leaders may not understand is that, you know, the proposed tax hikes right now in front of Congress, it's not just a one-off thing. I mean, if you, as I said, I mean, the Democrats are attacking capital gains from every conceivable angle. And, and the reason is because it goes back to these basic, you know, theories that uh, they're being fed by the, the left of center uh, academics. So I don't think these threats are going to go away. We're going to have to keep uh, battling uh, this for a long time. That said, I do think that if capital gains tax rates are raised uh, this year or next year, uh, I think that they will be cut again. I think there'll be an immediate effort by Republicans to cut them again. And we've seen cycles over, over time. Uh, in the late 60s, uh, capital gains tax uh, rates were uh, hiked. Uh, venture capital investment uh, fell during the 70s. Uh, that prompted Congress to cut capital gains taxes in 1978. And then in 1986, cap the capital gains tax rate was raised again. That led Republicans to immediately start pushing to cut it again, and it was cut in 97. So we do see these, uh, these cycles over time. And also, I, you know, I think there's just a huge amount of good news uh, in the marketplace. The cost of starting tech-oriented businesses uh, has fallen. Uh, the rise of crowd computing and 3D printing computer simulation, all these new technologies are making uh, tech-oriented startups uh, cheaper and cheaper uh, to start, and they're launching attacks uh, on, you know, many uh, industries. You know, if you read the Wall Street Journal every day, there's new, uh, you know, as they call them, disruptive startups in financial services and energy and many, many other industries. Uh, a lot of these startups will fail. There's a lot of hype. There's always a lot of hype in leading edge uh, industries. But you know what? The more competition, the more startups, I think it's, uh, you know, I think it's better. Uh, it will add to wealth and growth uh, in the economy. Chris Edwards directs tax policy studies at the Cato Institute. It is the final week for our push to make you, podcast listener, a podcast sponsor. Visit cato.org slash podcast sponsor to get started. And thank you.